Thank you for listening to our New Life Christian Center podcast. Stay tuned after the sermon for more ways to connect with us. I told you last week as I was attempting to prepare you for this, that the last few chapters of, of uh, Proverbs um, have probably have different authors. And this one uh, says the words of Agar, and, uh, or Agur, probably, I'm going to give you some probablys here. I wasn't there. As old as I am, I still wasn't there. And uh, probably he was some form of a teacher. His, word, his name means gatherer or collector. So it's possible that he was one of those guys who in his study, in his passing on wisdom, that wrote certain things down that meant something to him. And, and again, the divine wisdom, uh, you know, sometimes you have to wonder what gets put in the Bible um, because these are, these are Holy Spirit inspired words. And so this chapter written by this man and written to these two people, look at verse number one, if you would please, the words of Agur, the son of Jacob. And again, a hundred years from now, if somebody says, and you know, the words of Glenn, son of Glenn, grandson of Glenn, you're not going to know. I mean, I'm, my grandfather's name was Glenn as well. Uh, uh, you're just not going to know that. So something significant about this that allows for it to carry forward in such a way that we have it several thousand years later. And so it's pretty, it's pretty impressive stuff. And it says, this man declared to Ithiel and to Eucal. So again, we don't know who these people are and what the story is, but it's likely that he had taken these two potential uh, uh, students and spoken to them, maybe even segmented them off a little bit and, and gave them the, the, the deeper level of things. These were the guys that were committed and who knows, okay? But these are his words that the Holy Spirit chose to make a part of Proverbs. I, there are lots of you know, $32 books that you can buy that would explain this to you. And after you get all done, what you're going to have is a history lesson and a man's opinion. Okay, so $32 books full of opinions. And so what I really want you to get out of this is just the mystery and the marvel of how God puts things together for us. Now, it's possible that this man is older than the the two guys that he's he's talking about. It's probably likely that he is older than them. And it's possible that somewhere towards the tail end of his life or when maturity finally hit him. How many of you know age is guaranteed? Maturity is optional. Right? You know, I mean, some of us are are still, um, you know, 60-year-old teenagers, so it just happens, right? And occasionally what has to happen is we have to accept the work that God does in our life to mature us. And that will make us, I'm always amazed when people come up to me who've gone to high school with me, they only knew me for the first little bit of my life. Well, I graduated high school when I was 17 years old. The moment I left high school, I changed because of the circumstances and how evidently how God chose to deal with me. And so by the time I was 21 or 22, I was kind of a, a full-blown crazy man in Christ. Well, all of the people who knew me missed that. 
You know, and so then we'd come back for family reunions or for not family reunions, um, school reunions. And, and, and people would say, I just can't believe, you know, and they'd look at me and they say, I just can't believe, you know, and, and it's probably true. But keep in mind that as we mature, our life takes a different path. You just don't get to act like a teenager all the time. And you should choose that on your own. But secondarily, when God gets involved in your life, there should be a change in your life. Right or not? I mean, listen, if you're just checking the box for Sunday activity today, you should have stayed home and watched professional wrestling on TV or whatever's on Sunday morning. I don't know what's on Sunday morning. I haven't watched TV on Sunday morning for 45 years. I don't know what is there. God makes a difference in our life, not because of what we do, but because of what he does in us. And that's what this is about. Look at verse number two. It says, surely I am, for those of you who know me very well, I love this language. I love it when God uses the S word. I mean, right, you know, many of the parents, I've had so many parents over all the years of ministry come up to me and say, you shouldn't say the S word. See, they teach their children not to say stupid. So stupid is like the earliest kind of bad word that that two-year-olds get. And well, you're right, we don't want our children to talk that way. But sometimes what God does in us is cause us to recognize our own ineffective understanding of who he's making us to be. She says, surely I'm more stupid than any man. I don't know how many of you can relate to this, but I'm just telling you, God is smarter than us. And uh, he, he has things figured out and, and we don't. And as this guy's talking evidently to these two, you know, underlings here, he says, I'm more stupid than any man. And I do not have the understanding of a man. He paints himself in a picture that probably will help us understand the rest of this. He did not consider himself wise. Now, one of the things that you'll probably learn as you mature is the older you get, the less sure you are of what you know. Right? (laughs) The older you get, the less sure. In my first church, we had my own kids were in the teenage group, you know, and so it, it helped when I got to speak to them because I could speak to my children as I speak to everybody else. And I basically t- told all the, the, the high school kids that basically based on how they treat life right now, they should move out, get a job and solve the world's problems while they still think they can. Right. Because at 16, man, they got the world figured out and it only gets worse in some cases. Sometimes at 21 or 22, we're like, Come on, have you ever had a college professor that you were sure somehow he cheated to get to that position? Right? I mean, he's like dumb as a rock. And you're pretty sure he's dumb as a rock. If you're like me and you don't think through some things, you might get in trouble pointing out to him that he's dumb as a rock. Something happens in us that tones down who we think we are so we can accept who God says we are. Right. And so that's what he's doing here. He said, I'm not that man. I neither learned wisdom nor have knowledge of the Holy One. He's not saying he doesn't know God. He's saying the older that he gets, the less he's sure about of the awesome majesty of his God. And I just want to tell you something. There are times where God is so big that you just look at it and think, 
Who can understand this? You're living in a time right now that makes it real difficult to understand. Because it looks like, based on how, like if you live in northeastern Colorado, and forgive me if I step on anybody's toes here, but if you live in northeastern Colorado, there's a few things I know about you. You were taught for generations to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Whatever you put your mind to, you can do. Just get out there and get after it. Okay? We were taught generationally to be this way. And then we find ourselves in life. And like what just happened recently, many of the farmers of this community, you know, it was a multi-million or billion dollar hailstorms that went wheeling through here. And we had absolutely no control over those things. And we had planned and purposed and done all these things. See, we don't always know. Here's what I know. God isn't surprised by what happens on the earth. Now, I'm not saying he causes everything. I'm just saying he's not surprised by it. And in the midst of that, he is more interested in our development than our comfort. Yay, pastor, way to go. He's more interested in our development than our comfort. And he says, I have neither learned wisdom nor have knowledge of the Holy One. I sometimes just don't know what God is doing. Look at verse number four. Who has ascended into heaven? He considered the position of God. He says, how do we get up there to have a chat with him? You know, or descended. Who's come down from heaven to explain things to us? Now remember, when you read the Old Testament... You have to keep in mind that your experience is based on a New Testament theology. In the Old Testament, you had to behave correctly and do all the rules so God would accept you. It was a works-based relationship. In the New Testament, these are just basic things. Jesus was sent by God to do the works that you could not do. And so God now accepts you based on your acceptance of the work of Jesus Christ. There is, you cannot be good enough to get to heaven. I don't care what anybody tries to do. I don't care if you give away all your money, serve all the poor, go, go live in India. It doesn't make any difference. If you don't accept Jesus Christ, you're simply out of luck. So he deals with us differently. And so when he says, who has ascended into heaven or descended from heaven to tell us, he's talking from a position that is not New Testament based. So let's answer the question, who has ascended? Okay. Jesus. Thank you, Pastor Terry. <laughs> I appreciate that so much. That, that you got it, you're tracking with me. Pastors do that. We can be an audience unto ourselves because we know the right answer. By the way, the right answer is almost always just holler out Jesus and that'll work, okay? Jesus ascended, right? He was crucified, he died, right? He rose from the dead, resurrection, walked around for 40 days, give or take, seen by hundreds of people, according to the Bible. And 10 days before the day of Pentecost, he ascended. Who has ascended? See, who's gone up to get what God has for us? Jesus. And who has descended? Well, what did he do when he got up there? He, what, he, he sent the Holy Spirit. He descended. See, we have an answer to this. Thank you, Terry. I'm just trying. 
There you go. The Jesus in us is, worse, is better than the Jesus with us. Is that what you said? I almost butchered it. Here's the point. When you read these things, and you're going, oh, I'm learning so much. Remember to keep your New Testament theology in place. Jesus ascended. He went up and sat down beside the Father, the right hand of the Father. The Bible tells us that. That's, the, that's one of the, the, the basic foundations of our faith, is that Jesus and God are up there bumping foreheads talking about us. You say, why are they talking about us? Because we need what they have. That's the whole purpose of this Proverbs. He's saying, listen, I'm dumb as a rock. I don't know anything. and I don't even know God. And who can ascend to speak to him? And who can descend and bring things back? We have an answer to that. The Holy Spirit was sent back to us to live in it. He says, he will come and take of what is mine and show it to you. The book of John tells us that. So when we read these things, make sure and keep your New Testament theology in place. Don't go, oh, that's right. We're just, we're just wandering around aimless. We don't know what's going on. No. Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to dwell in us through his completed work in Jesus Christ. God sent the Holy Spirit, said that wrong. God sent the Holy Spirit to dwell in us through the finished work of Jesus Christ. You have both a relationship with the ascender and a relationship with the descender, the Holy Spirit who came to live in you. Amen? Who has gathered the winds in his fists? Now this is talking about the greatness of our God. Who has gathered the wind in his fist? Who has bound the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name, if you know? Well, see, you can answer that. See, back then, they expected for there to be a Messiah. They expected somebody that was going to come and rescue them from their position on the earth. Well, we, again, keep your New Testament theology in place. We know his name. See, that's why the New Testament talks and, and gives us that, that kind of position that says we need to use or be aware of the kind of positional authority in the name of Jesus. See, that's available to us. All right, let's keep going. Skip, turn over to verse number five. Every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who put their trust in him. Now stop for just a second and stop reading like you're reading a book. I mean, I realize you are, but notice what he says. He says, every word of God is pure. It's unassailable in its holiness. You can say, well, God doesn't do this. God isn't this way. Listen, if God said it in his word, it's pure. You say, wow, I, you know, your opinion doesn't move God, right? God is not up in heaven waiting to punch your parking ticket to tell you you got things right. He's right whether you agree with him or not. <laughs> Notice what he said. He is a shield to those who put their trust in him. Can I point out to you that the responsibility of trusting him is on you? The responsibility of trusting him is on you. You think God's just going to come down somehow supernaturally, magically interrupt your life to point out to you that you're going the wrong direction. I mean, we would love to do that. In fact, if we take it far enough, what we'd really like God to do for those people that we think about is to give us control of the lightning bolts of heaven and just drop one kind of close to that person who needs to wake up to the things of God. Wouldn't that be great? I mean, honestly, 
the only problem would be is that somebody would get control of the lightning bolt that's for you, right? And <laughs> he would get your attention. But none of that actually works. Here's my point. Is we want to control, we, we would like to control how God deals with things. At times we all believe that we've got ideas that God should take, right? We've got plans. The reason that many of us have a prayer list is, is to ask God to help. But in reality, what we'd like to do is to tell God what to do that would bless us. Amen. You have to put your trust in him for him to become a shield to you. Now, whether you understand the language or not, the idea behind a shield is exactly what you might think it is. It's a large protective thing that's in front of you. Okay? So if you... How many remember the story of David and Goliath? Okay. So David, as a teenager, probably red-haired, he was probably a kid that got teased in junior high, okay? So he, he, he went, at his father's instruction, he went to the, to the battleground where, where the, the Israelites were lined up against the Philistines. And the Philistines had this, this great champion named Goliath, who was likely, you know, nine, ten feet tall. I mean, huge guy. He had a, he had a, a spear that, according to what we know about how they measure, likely weighed about 125 pounds. Okay, and a sword. And what's hidden inside of that is that he had a shield bearer. A shield bearer. If you go read the story when he does this, you'll see that he had a shield bearer. Now, the shield was big enough, probably came to a point at the bottom, it was big enough to cover all the, the, the important parts of the person whose shield it was. Okay, but he had somebody that bared that, that, that carried that for him. Now, if we use that knowledge historically to interpret this verse, we would say he is a shield or literally he carries our shield because we trust him. He carries our shield because we trust him. He protects us, right? No? Is that, is that okay? I mean, I know you're thinking, wait a minute. You mean God would, 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 would lower himself to protect me? It's a part of his plan to protect you. You are his creation. He wants to protect you. You say, well, yeah, but he doesn't all the time. Do you trust him? Do you trust him to do it? See, sometimes we feel like we're just in life, just kind of cruising along, hoping that this is going to go well. Never placing any trust. Not, and then this is not like, ver, oh yeah, I trust you. No, I really don't. You know, trust is an abandonment. Right? I mean, we've got a couple grandkids that are learning how to drive. And, and once they get their permit, or in the case of my one grandson who's driven a, a, a simulator, he's real sure he can drive now. Well... I trust him, but not that much, right? My car, he said, Papa, let me move your car. I want to play basketball. They've got a basketball hoop in their driveway. So I backed my car into their house to unload our, our stuff. And, and so I, you know, I said, okay, you, know, you can just park the car right out here. Try not to hit anything. 
So the car is pointed so that if you want to get out of the driveway, you've got to put it in D for go directly forward, right? And so he says to me, he's got his hands and he's looking all nervous, you know, and he says, Papa, the car won't go. I said, well, why not? And I look in and he's got it in reverse. Because his experience suggests whenever they've let him drive, back up first, go and drive second. So he's backing up. You know, he's going to hit the cars that are in the garage, tear the garage door down. I have reasons for not trusting him. But see, sometimes what we do with God is we, play, we place human tendencies on our God. And we take the negative circumstances that we've had and we say, I don't really trust God because the last time I begged him to do something, he didn't do it. And we neglect to see what God was doing in us because we were angry, frustrated, or, or just whatever Christianese you want to use because he didn't do what we asked him to do. So we didn't trust him because of our experiences with him. Right? When we get to that place where we're, where we're trying to figure out what is it that God wants out of my life, we have to trust him that he knows what he's doing. And occasionally it feels like that he's got the car in reverse. God is excellent at tapping the brakes of your life. Right? And we need, we need to cooperate with it. We need to trust him. When I get slowed down, I, okay, so my personality is like bet the farm, risk it all, sell out, let's go. God will surely take care of it. I'm that guy, okay? So I am a ready, shoot, aim guy. When I miss, I go, <laughs> you've all heard my rabbit stories, right? When I miss, I think I should have taken a little bit more time to aim before I shot all 25 bullets in the thingy that goes in the gun. Because the only reason I'm shooting the gun is to shoot all of the bullets in the magazine. It's the only reason I shoot. I couldn't hit the broadside. If, if I'm ever mad at you and come to murder you, just stand still. Okay? Because I'm not sure I can hit you. Here's the point. We do a lot with God that way. Ready? Shoot! We want God to be immediate while we don't recognize what we should be aiming at. And sometimes rather than movement, what God is aimed at is our character. Yes and amen. So we have to trust him to get that level of, of shielding that he's offering to us. Here's verse number six. Do not add to his words. Do not add to his words. Lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. You know, in our movement, you charismatic Pentecostal, I heard from God every minute of the day kind of folks, we oftentimes tell people that God said something. And oftentimes we're as wrong as wrong can be. Because God wasn't saying that to everybody. In fact, he might not have even been saying it. Here's, here's a prime example. How many of you have ever felt like that God was revealing to you that Satan was attacking you. Don't raise your hands. I don't want me to, you know, oh, I'm under such persecution, pastor. Listen to me. By design, when you accept Jesus Christ, the only way the enemy can persecute you is with your permission. Quit complaining at God and say, well, you just can't believe how terrible this is. You give him permission 
by walking out from underneath the authority of Jesus Christ that you walk in. Okay, you can all stop frowning now. I know it's so much easier. How many of you know when you're growing up, it's easier to blame somebody else? Right? I mean, I grew up with one brother. He did all the bad things. That's how I do it. He did it. He's the, he's, he's the bad guy. When, I was ra- when we were tracing our raising our, our boys, they learned that excuses didn't work with me. And so they would always say things like, well, I just hit him back. See, thinking that without saying it's the other boy's fault who started it, right? Because see, I won't listen to that. Don't tell me. If you're going to talk with me, do not talk about what somebody else did. Tell me where you are. And they, you know, the boys would always say, and we had two instigators and two sneaky ones. Okay. So the instigators, out they went, man. And they would just poke and poke and poke until somebody, you know, did something. Well, you know, they learned how to to make that work. My my point is that you don't want to add words to what God says. You want to pay attention to what God is doing in your life. Okay. If you pay attention to what God's doing in your life, you will have his word to you. If you pay attention to what the devil is doing in your life, I have the $64,000 question for you. Why are you paying so much attention to the devil? Well, the devil, you know, my first church, you know, raised in the word of faith group and all that kind of stuff. And man, the people would come to me and the devil said this and the devil said that. I'm not the sharpest guy in the room, but I'm wondering why you're listening to the devil. I mean, the Bible says he's a liar from the beginning. There's no truth found in him. Even if you are listening to him, you should assume the exact opposite is true. I mean, see, that was my simplistic way. (laughs) Praise God. You heard God say that you're not saved. Praise God. That is a sure sign that you are. Because it's the exact opposite of what the liar says is true. Oh, Pastor, you got to pray for me. I got to get saved. I'm going, okay. I struggled with that. Verse number seven. He changes and he makes two basic requests here in his maturity. Look what he says in verse 7. Two things I request of you, deprive me not before I die. This is like this guy's bucket list. Two things. How many of you gotten old enough that you don't want a whole lot? You figured it out. Right? He who dies with the most is dead. Sorry. Not, not, I don't know who it was, some rich guy who said, who, he who dies with the most toys wins or something like that. No, he who dies is dead. And you know what? The people who inherit your toys aren't going to like them. Sorry. Two things I request. Look at verse 8. Remove falsehood and lies far from me. He didn't want to be a liar. He did not want to have that inside of him. Look at the second thing. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Now, isn't that interesting? In our young life, we would pick one of those and think we'd want one. I know which one I would pick. I've I've never taken a vow of poverty. I, I don't think vows of poverty are necessarily godly. If Christ died for us 
That's the richest thing on the planet. And I refuse to call it poverty. I call it provision. He says, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me. You know what he just said? He said, let me be satisfied with what you've provided for me. Could we learn something from that? Could we learn that this guy who's teaching these young people <coughs> this, this story, could we learn that God was saying, let me, or that God was recording or however this happened, this guy was saying and God liked it, let me be satisfied with what's been given to me. Man, you, you, you got to get old to, to recognize this one, older. You've got to get mature. Age doesn't do it. Verse number nine. Lest I be full and deny you. What does he mean by that? He means that when I get to that place of, of satisfaction on my own, I will neglect to thank God for it, who is the giver of all things. He'll, you'll, deny, you'll deny Christ. You'll deny what God did in your life. And say, who is the Lord? Or, lest I be poor and steal. <laughs> the two things. He said, I'm going to get a lot of wealth by my own power and then I'll deny God or I'll be po uh, impoverished and be forced to steal and profane the name of my God. Notice that he's associated with the name of God. Verse number 11. Here, are, <laughs> all of you older people are really going to appreciate this. But he, he's, he's getting ready to, to talk about what he's learned in watching life. He says, there is a generation that curses its father. Now, please don't raise your hand and embarrass yourself. But how many of you, have you, how many of you as you age, notice how disrespectful young people can be? Have you noticed that? How many of you, don't raise your hands. How many of you noticed it in your own children and about ready to have, you know, a committal service? because <laughs> you're crazy. How many of you were that way? How many of you cursed your parents? My father was the dumbest man on the planet for a great number of years. And at some point in my 20s, my dad became smart. It was like a miracle. You see what I'm saying? There's always a generation like that. He's saying this to show you the futility of how he saw life. Notice in verse number 12. There's a generation that is pure in its own eyes. See, he's talking about how he sees life. We obviously can learn something from this. Pure in his own eyes, yet is not washed from its filthiness. Have you ever recognized somebody who thought they were doing well, but not so much? You saw that generation. See, there, there's nothing inherently spiritual about recognizing how someone else grows up. Right? I mean, you, you did it with your own kids. Sometime around the age of two, you got your kids to start going potty in the big person toilet. Because it's way easier than that mess in their diaper. You can't wait. How many of you, my mom did this to us. My mom told Tracy and I, bless her heart, she's in heaven. She's okay with me telling this story. And I know she's in heaven because I was involved. She came to us and said, well, you know, my boys were potty trained at nine months. 
really? I am an amazing child. When I was nine months old, I had it figured out. I was probably doing quantum physics in my spare time. Yay me. See, <laughs> you understand how, how as we age, if we don't pay attention, we'll miss and actually, actually condemn or have difficulties with the very thing that we did when we were young. God isn't interested in us being able to pick that out. He's interested in us in becoming a part of a solution that changes generations. Right? So when he says these things, you just look at him and go, well, I bet it was terrible to live back then. All these bad generations. Verse number 13, there's a generation. Oh, how lofty their eyes are and their eyelids are lifted up. And these are the people who think they can do anything. I want my children to think they can do anything so that when they get enough brilliance poked into their skull of mush, they'll ask God what they can do and believe what he says. Right? So when my, when, when my uh, uh, three-year-old jumped off the roof of a restaurant at the same time saying, catch me, daddy, I think he must have thought either he can fly or dad will catch me. You know, and I said, that's terrible. Yeah, I almost didn't catch him. He only got one little scratch on his shoulder. It was good. Grabbed him by one leg and swung him up in the air and looked at him and said, I'd rather you not do that again. But praise God. I mean, come on. When your children step out and believe, they're creating a foundation of trust. We just got to get the trust going the right direction. Right now they trust themselves. Please don't beat that out of them. Push God towards them. Yes, you could do it. God, trust God for what he's saying to you. I had a Let's see, five, three. So I, I suppose my one son, who is the point of this story, was probably um, less than 10. He was a fourth grader. However old that is, you make up the age. He was so sensitive to the Spirit of God that when he would hear something from God, I guess, he would come to me and say, Dad, I think we're supposed to go to the nursing home. Well, no thanks. I mean, like, you know, semi-warm food all looked the same. That wasn't my idea of a good thing. And then he found out why we were supposed to go there. There was a man there named O.C. And for whatever reason, God put this man on my son's heart. And O.C. would break out. And one day, Christopher, whoops, I wasn't going to tell you who it was, Christopher. Christopher hollers at me and he says, Dad. Osi's outside. He's busted loose. He's walking down the alley behind our house, but he only has one shoe on. I went out and I said, Osi, what are you doing? He said, I'm walking home. I'm tired of that place. Okay. Christopher and I walked this man back to the nursing home holding his hand when he was 10. That didn't save him from having to make his own choices when he got a little older. Some of you know his story, but that stuff was in him. And you got to see him a couple of weeks ago. It took him almost six months to get the capacity to carry the thankfulness that God was putting in his heart so he could talk about it. Now, I don't have your experiences. I don't have your examples. I only have mine. 
But I will tell you, there's a generation, right? And it gets important that we do our best to contribute to them what God has. Notice the next one in verse uh, uh, 14. There's a generation whose teeth are like swords. Whose fangs are like knives to devour the poor from off the earth and the needy from among men. This talks about biting words and sharp tongues. Right? How many ever recognize that there are just some people in their maturity who say things they probably shouldn't say? There's a generation like that. Amen. Skip down if you would, please. Verse 18. There are three things which are too wonderful for me. Yes, four, which I don't understand. He's talking about the amazing position of God's creation. Here they are. The way of an eagle in the air. Man, if you've ever seen an eagle soar, I mean, you know, this is a, this is a 20, 25 pound bird with wings and they get up in the air and they never flap them. How they do that? I mean, when you, watch a, when you watch a goose trying to fly or something bigger than that that only flies from one puddle of water to the next, they're not necessarily graceful flyers, right? When you watch an eagle or a hawk or even a vulture, you know, the, the, the condor types, they just, they just float in the air. They've understood how God created them. The way of a serpent on a rock. We killed a, a, a rabbit when Crone was here. We killed a rabbit. There used to be a great big rock out by this tree on the east side, west, east, west side of the front doors right here. Great big old rock. And so we put that up there when we had the school. Put that, put that rabbit up there on the deal because we were going to, I don't know. I thought I'd have a bi- biology lesson with the kids. I don't exactly know what we're going to do, but it seemed like a good thing to do. And we had this big old bull snake around here um, that we called Henry. And so I don't know how Henry knew, but this rock was, you know, almost waist high to me. It's still around here. We just moved it. Um, and, and, and this snake, it, they don't have feet. They don't have fingers. They don't have any way to grab. This snake crawled up the side of that rock on top of that, curled up and started to swallow that rabbit. Now, first of all, how did he get up there? If he doesn't have any hands to climb the rock. I mean, he just, he just used little scales on his belly or something. I don't know how he got up there. And then the ability to open his mouth that far and swallow a huge rabbit. You say, oh, that's just terrible, Pastor. Well, you tell me how God thinks of stuff like that. It's just too wonderful. And you're saying, well, I don't like it. We should have killed, you know, not only killed the rabbit, we should have killed the snake. Yeah, okay. <laughs> the way of a ship in the midst of a sea. How do, you, how, do, how, how do ships figure out where to go? Right? You know that if you want to get to Denver, I can tell you the best way to get there is to stay on a road. But if you're in the ocean, good luck with that. Right? How did they do that? It's because God scattered the stars in such a way that you can trust them for eternity. <laughs> God is awesome. He says in uh, that, and, and the way of a man with a virgin. Now, this is hard because, you know, I don't want to get graphic about this, but this talks about a man who's in love, who's willing to lay down his own desires to capture the desires of this person. How does God do that? You ever looked at people and wondered how they got married? I mean, you know, really, you look at them and go, really? 
And you can always tell, uh, like, like some guys like batting above his average. You look at her and she's kind of nice and he's a doofus. And you just think, how'd that happen? Or, or you know, not, I'm not talking about you guys. You know, that's not what I mean right there. But, but you know, but, but anyway, or the other way around, you look at somebody, you go, what in the world does she see? And, you know, well, anyway, so uh, there's this, there's this mystery behind how the love of God is manifested that charges us to lay down our own desires for the desires of somebody that God's pointing out to us. It's just interesting. Verse 21. There are three things the earth is perturbed. <laughs> he says, the earth is angry about this, yet four cannot bear up. A servant when he reigns. Isn't that interesting? A fool when he's filled with food. A hateful woman when she's married and a maidservant who succeeds her mistress. There are four things which are little on the earth, but they're exceedingly wise. The ants. Isn't that interesting? The rock badger. I don't know what a rock badger is. Evidently, they're feeble folk. <laughs> they make their homes in the crags of the rocks. A marmot? That didn't help me, Lola. Oh, do you know what a marmot is? Okay, good. See Lola after class. <laughs> Rock badgers and locusts and spiders. Now, again, you just think, what in the world? He's, he's explaining to us how he gets his mind around the awesome majesty of God and his creation. See, he said he didn't know God. But what did he know? He knew his circumstances, he knew his situation, he knew what to look at and go, man, <clears throat> how'd God do that? For those of you, I don't have a lot of time, for those of you, in, especially coming up on fall now, who wondered why God made flies. You're coming into a season where you'll get to question that. And you should check your heart because what you'll say is, why in the world did God do this? I will tell you right now, having been in a third world country that didn't have the necessary hygiene for dead things, is if you don't have a lot of flies, dead things lay around for a long time. And they smell bad. And then they get covered with leaves. And then leaves get wet. And then the leaves smell like dead people rotting and wet leaves. And then when the people of the area get tired of it, they light it all on fire. Want to live there? Okay, so flies come along, lay their eggs, larva, produces magnets, maggots, eat the flesh, all gone. Yay. Please bless the flies. Yeah, see? Do you see what he did, though? He looked at this and go, wow, that's awesome. Look what God did. There are three things which are majestic. Verse 29 in pace. Yes, four, which walk stately, a lion. Verse 31, a greyhound, a male goat, and a king whose troops are with him. Again, it's not, a, you say, well, what is he talking about? He's showing you things that represent the majesty of God. He's saying, look at this. Can you see God in this? 32, and I'll close with this. If you've been foolish in exalting yourself, or if you've devised evil, put your hand to your mouth. For as the churning of milk produces butter, and the wringing of the nose produces blood, so the forcing of wrath produces strife. I want you to take care of what gets you in trouble. Isn't that interesting? 
So next week we'll do uh, Proverbs 31. And uh, that is the last Proverbs. It only took us, you know, more than half a year to get through this. I don't know what we're going to do next, but uh, we'll find something to do. Amen. Did you learn? I, I love Proverbs 30 because it's just in it's such a different style. It's so, so interesting. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for teaching us, for your Holy Spirit just being, being magnified in our midst. Father, showing and teaching and revealing to us these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. To subscribe to our podcast, search New Life Eckley in all of the major podcasting apps. Audio and video of our sermons are posted at newlifeeckley.com slash live, and you can watch sermon slices weekdays on social media. Search at New Life Eckley. Our main service is at 10 a.m. Mountain Time every Sunday. Thanks for listening.